0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we're going to get started. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray. Yep. God, we just thank you so much for another chance that we had to be together as a church. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we had to study it together. And uh, God, we just want to pray now that you would teach us and encourage us. God, that we would find encouragement through your word. God, that you'd give me clarity as I speak today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, do you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's been about five weeks since I've had the chance to teach. So I'm excited about being able to continue through the book of 1 Thessalonians with us. Um, Appreciate Adam and... Tyson and their willingness to fill in over the past couple of weeks as I was on vacation. And um, I'm excited to be back into 1 uh, Thessalonians with you guys today. we we'll start reading in uh, verse 13. We're going to finish up chapter 4. We've been in chapter 4 for several months now. Uh, we really looked at some eschatology items to help us understand the remaining portion of chapter 4 and then chapter 5. And uh, now that we've kind of hopefully understood a little bit about eschatology better together, hopefully we're now ready to enter into um, Paul's teaching here in the remaining portion of chapter 4 and chapter 5. So let's read it together. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now you'll remember the context of this passage if you look back into the beginning portion of chapter 4. Paul began with some instruction and discussion about God's will for the lives of the people in Thessalonica. And what did we say God's will was for that church and ultimately is still God's will for us as believers today? What's that ultimate will that God has for our life? Sanctification. sanctification. Okay? And we spent several weeks kind of breaking down what is sanctification, what does that look like for us, and what is God actually wanting for us? We define sanctification as the progressive, work of the Holy Spirit in the believer that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. And we said that sanctification, if that's God's will for our life, becoming more and more like Christ, that it has to be a priority in our life. That if that's God's will, then we've got to make that a priority. So we talked about some ways that we can do that, making sure that we are investing in our own sanctification. Then we looked at specifically how God's will for our life, our sanctification, is specifically defined for this church in the area of sex. And Paul challenges this church to fight for purity. That they have to fight to keep their feelings in check. And we spent some time talking about the, the temptation that exists even for our church that we're made up of a lot of single people. So there's the temptation that culture teaches us that it's okay to satisfy the feelings and desires that you have sexually. But even then, there's the the, the idea that we have couples here, married couples, and the temptation exists there for them to step outside of that marriage. That our feelings will will say things to us, our flesh will say say things to us that contradict what God desires for us. And we have to make sure that we keep our feelings in check. Um... I was reminded of that yesterday as I was talking to some guys from Snowbird, and um, one of them was saying that um, a couple of summers ago he was, this is a married guy, a couple of summers ago he he began to realize that he was physically attracted to another girl that was working on staff. And he said at first he tried to deny it, um, he tried to ignore it, he tried to just pass it off as something silly, something that was just going to go away. And he said he began to realize that it wasn't going away. And he ended up sitting down with some other other leadership at Snowbird and confessing that and saying, Guys, I need you to pray for me. Like I am physically attracted to another woman on staff here that's not my wife, and I've got to fight against that. And he said, even in the process of confessing that to men that he knew was going to pray for him, that it immediately began to resonate with him what he was actually doing, what he was allowing to tolerate in his own life. And he said, from that moment on, it gave him Unbelievable victory in that area to know that he had other brothers praying for him, but the fact that he had come open with it, that he had confessed it, that he had confessed his desire to fight it. And that's true for us as a church as well. When we recognize feelings that are not biblical, especially in the area of sex, we've got a responsibility to fight those desires, to recognize that God's will for our life is sanctification, purity, and we're to fight it. We looked at some ways to do that, to abstain from it, to possess our bodies, to possess our vessel in a way that brings purity rather than sexual immorality. We said ultimately the way that we do that is to act like we know God. We said people that engage in sexual immorality, sexual immoral acts, are people who are acting like they don't know God. That it's a characteristic of people who are lost. And we said ultimately when we know God, when we know that His laws are designed for our good, When we understand that he's the creator of sex, that he designed it for our enjoyment, for our good, that his instructions are how to use it best. And so we we pursue sexual purity by acting like we know God, acting like we trust in his goodness. Recognizing that he is for us, not against us. That he is for our joy, not trying to withhold us from happiness and joy. And then we said several weeks ago, maybe months ago, that Paul also called the church to love others faithfully and to work hard. And we said that there was the possibility that some of these guys had become so enamored with the second coming of Jesus that they had begun to neglect temporal responsibilities. People were quitting their jobs potentially, kind of slacking off at work with the mindset that, well, Jesus is coming back soon, so these things are no longer important. And so Paul gave them instruction and says, you've got a responsibility to take care of the here and now. Take care of the here and now. He said it's a testimony to unbelievers when we work hard. It's a testimony to unbelievers to work hard in our jobs, to take care of our responsibilities. It's a demonstration of the gospel in our life that we're good citizens. And now as we move into verses 13 and following, Paul is seeking to answer questions about the church's loved ones. There's a question that's kind of sprung up, and it's possible that it came to Paul from Timothy. Remember, we said that Paul couldn't get to the church, so he ultimately had to send Timothy to bring more teaching to them. And it's possible that Timothy brought this question back to Paul. Hey, Thessalonians want to know about their loved ones. What happened to the people that they were close to, family members, friends, that have died in the past couple of months, possibly due to persecution? There was this question kind of looming over them. Are they now at a disadvantage? Because we've heard, and we've already said, Paul was faithful to teach them about the second coming. That he didn't save that for the spiritually mature. That he took Christians that were six months old in their, in their spiritual infancy and began to instruct them about eschatology. So they were aware of the second coming. They had a lot of teaching about the second coming. But what had gotten lost in all that is what happens if we don't actually make it when Jesus comes back What if we die before Jesus comes back How does that fit into God's plan And So Paul was having to Provide some instruction here So we see Paul Address an extreme that happened Some people have become so enamored With the second coming they neglected responsibilities And So he says focus on the here and now But Paul doesn't want to ignore The fact that we As we live in the here and now We still have to focus on the future We have to live in light of the fact that the future is coming. And so we we live like that now. We take care of our responsibilities, but we recognize this is temporary. This doesn't last very long. Um, I was kind of reminded, I was thinking through um, some things yesterday, and it really kind of makes sense to me to think of it in terms of maybe how you approach your college years. I know for me, um, I had the, the benefit of going away to school. Went away to Virginia. I was up at school for, um, I was in school for six years with undergrad and graduate school. And I developed some funny sleeping habits when I was in college. And and Lauren kind of has to suffer through those now. Uh, I sleep better on a couch than I sleep on a bed. Uh, It was around junior year, senior year, I started rooming with Rob from Snowbird. And he convinced me that it would be better to kind of use our top bunk bed for storage He would sleep on the bottom bed, and then I could sleep on the couch, and then we would have all kinds of space to entertain, and so I was like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And we were only going to be in there for a few months, and so I went to the Goodwill to buy a couch, and I got this this ugly, nasty couch, because my perspective was I'm not going to be here that long, so I just need something to get me through the next few months, and it was funny. It's kind of an old-style couch. It has, like, the wooden backing on it, and... um, Apparently, it had been running in the Liberty family for years because every group of guys that had this couch had kind of signed their name on the back. And so it would say 2002 to 2003, and the guys that had the couch in their dorm. And so when I got it, there was a list of names. And so obviously, other people had kind of the same perspective. We need a couch for a temporary time. We go to Goodwill. We buy this couch. And so when I got done with it, signed my name on it, took it back to Goodwill, and I'm sure somebody's still benefiting from that today. That carried over even when we lived off campus. We would kind of decorate our house, purchase things for our house with the mindset that we're not staying here. And we recognized that we had things that we had to take care of, like we had schooling to do, we had responsibilities to take care of, but we were living for the future, that we're going to get jobs, we're going to get married. I anticipated that Lauren was not going to want to keep that couch with all these guys' names on it, and so gave it back to the goodwill. But there were things that we had to take care of then and now, But we still have this mindset that college is great, we're going to have fun, we're going to enjoy it, we have responsibilities, but there's something better that's coming. We're going to have families, we're going to have long-term jobs, long-term residencies, so let's not invest too much in the here and now. I think that's Paul's perspective here. He says, you've got a temporal amount of time on this earth. Make sure you take care of your responsibilities. Don't lose sight of the here and now because you're so anxious for the future. People that do that begin to suffer in their grades. I've shared with you before, students, as summer gets closer, grades start to fall off because they start over-anticipating the future. Paul says, don't over-anticipate the future. Focus on the here and now, but don't lose sight of the fact that there is a future coming. Don't over-invest in the here and now. And so Paul's wanting to encourage these people. He's wanting to encourage them to, to focus on the future properly. And it especially comes into play when we start talking about loved ones and family members that begin to pass away. How does the grief that we have from losing people that we care about factor into the here and now and the future? And we see Paul strive to answer that question here in verses 13 and following. Some initial application. Now remember, we're approaching this from a second coming perspective as opposed to a rapture perspective. Some of the reasons that we went over, because of what I believe the scriptures teach about Israel and the church being one people of God. The fact that the hope for the believer seems to be the second coming, not a coming prior to that. And then ultimately that scripture teaches um, that the believer can expect tribulation. So we're approaching it from a second coming perspective, but in some initial application, the complexity of this passage lies not in when it will happen but in how the Christian should apply it daily. We can say that it's true. This is a difficult passage of Scripture to understand. But the more I've looked at it and the more I've studied it, the complexity about this passage lies not so much in where does all this stuff happen, but ultimately how the Christian should apply it daily. So yes, it's a complex, difficult passage, but maybe not for the reasons we were anticipating. These things will happen. When will they happen? We can disagree about. But the real complexity of this is how does the Christian do these things? How does the Christian apply what's going on in these verses daily? It's helpful to understand this is not a discourse on the end times. Paul's, pers- Paul's purpose here in perspective is not to have... A full-blown evening in eschatology. Hey, church of Thessalonica, here's what you can expect from beginning to end when we talk about the end times. You'll notice there's absolutely no mention of unbelievers here. There's no mention of unbelievers. There's no mention that unbelievers get God's wrath. There's no mention that unbelievers get left behind. Those are things that we kind of read back into the passage. But Paul's not even dealing with unbelievers here. This passage is not a threat to not get left behind. It's not even a threat to not endure God's wrath. He doesn't mention unbelievers here at all. The reason for that is it's not a discourse on end times. It's not his purpose. He's not trying to make the ungodly fear. He's trying to correct the anguish of the godly. It helps to understand that that's the purpose of why he even brings this end time stuff up. He is dealing with a problem. The problem was not when will the rapture or when will the second coming happen. It was what happens to people that we love or we're going to their funerals. What happens to those people? We are anguishing over them. We are, we are grieving over them. And what, what is evident from the text is that it was no different than a lost person grieving over a lost loved one. Paul says, i got to correct this. I've got to correct the anguish of godly people who have become either misinformed or uninformed. Number two, the purpose is to comfort, not to satisfy all our curiosity. Again, understanding the purpose of this passage helps us to interpret this passage and to apply this passage. This passage is not meant to tell us all of the question, answers to the questions that we have. It doesn't tell us who the Antichrist is. It doesn't tell us when these things happen. It doesn't tell us what happens after these things. It's meant to communicate a purpose, and that purpose is comfort. Number three, Paul's encouragement calls for the believer to make sure his feelings are always in line with his theology. Make sure your feelings are in line with your theology. Isn't that really the the complexity of just living the Christian life? It's it's bringing our, our feelings, things that we feel on a daily basis, in line with what we know. The theology that we have up here, getting that to translate to how we feel on a daily basis. And that goes into everything we just talked about with sin and sex. Bringing what we know that God has to say about those things in line with what we feel on a daily basis. And when our feelings don't match up with what we know... Correcting it, Realizing that what we know is always going to supersede what we feel. And what was happening here is that they didn't know what they needed to know. And so their feelings were all out of whack. And they were acting like lost people again. Not in the area of sex, but in the area of sorrow. And Paul wants to correct that. He wants to bring in line their feelings with their theology. Number four, Paul's major concern. A lack of knowledge will lead to a lack of hope. A lack of knowledge will lead to a lack of hope. The problem is that these people didn't know. They didn't know the information they needed to know, and it was causing them to have unbiblical feelings. And as we see, and we'll see this more when we get into 2 Thessalonians, Paul has a battle here because not only is he trying to inform the uninformed He's having to battle against false teachers who are trying to misinform this church. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together in Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There were people that were trying to spiritualize the return of Jesus, that Jesus has already come back, Church of Thessalonica. You're waiting for something that's not going to happen. And so Paul's got kind of an uphill battle here. He's battling ignorance. These people don't know. But he's also battling false teachers who are trying to misinform this church about what the end times look like. So understanding, hopefully, the purpose of this passage, it now allows us to get into these verses together. The hope of the end. Studying the end times brings us four things that we can see from this passage of Scripture. Number one, it brings us information. When we commit to studying the end times, and we talked a lot um, several weeks ago about just blessings that come from studying the end times, and there blessings that are promised to the believer for being faithful to study the end times. He said it's difficult. It requires time. It requires effort. It requires wrestling with different views and perspectives. There's great blessing in seeking to understand end-time prophecy, specifically the book of Revelation. It's promised to us. What we see from this passage is that we gain information when we study end times. Paul says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. He's about to teach them about the end times. And so, obviously, in teaching them, it brings them information that they need to know. He doesn't want them to be uninformed, instead he wants them to be informed, biblically informed about what's going to happen. A lack of knowledge was causing the people to react or feel wrongly about their circumstances. They were grieving wrongly. They were going to funerals wrongly. They were handling the days and weeks after the death of someone wrongly. She says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who were asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, do you think it would be correct to say that Paul is saying it is wrong for a Christian to grieve? That when a Christian goes to a funeral, his theology should overwhelm him so much that all he can do is rejoice over the fact that this person is with Christ and, and everything's great, and so it should always be a time of celebration. Okay, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. What support can we use to to demonstrate that that Paul is not saying that it's wrong to grieve? What's some some evidence in Scripture that we can see that maybe that it's it's not wrong to grieve, but it's actually appropriate at times to grieve? Okay, but outside of this passage, okay, when Lazarus died, we you know that Jesus wept, so there was an appropriate means for Jesus. To to grieve over the death of his friend There was a a human reaction To the events that Jesus was experiencing We also know That passage is in um, John 11 If you want to look at that later In Romans 12, 15 we're told to Weep with those that weep We're to rejoice with those that rejoice We're to weep with those that weep We're not to tell people that are weeping to stop weeping We're to weep with them We're to be sympathetic to what other people In our church are going through and, and what the scriptures seem to imply is sometimes they just need somebody to cry with them, to grieve with them. So it's very appropriate for a Christian to grieve. It's a natural human response. Um, and it's appropriate because it should draw us to the fact that what we are experiencing is not what God desired. That sin has wrecked his creation with him still being in control of all that. But sin has wrecked what it's supposed to be. That we're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to get sick. We're not supposed to have sorrow. We're not supposed to have any reason to grieve. And we sang this morning about the fact that when Jesus comes back, all those things go away. But until that time, those things readily exist for us. And it's appropriate for us to grieve. But one way that a Christian can grieve properly is to maintain a gospel perspective. To recognize that this is not how it's supposed to be. And thank Jesus that it won't be like this forever. That the things that I'm feeling right now will not be felt for eternity. So it's appropriate for a Christian to grieve, and that's not what Paul's trying to communicate, that it's wrong. It's, in, it's natural. It's inevitable. He's not even telling these Christians to be less sad than a lost person. It has more to do with the response to the sadness. Grieving rightly serves as a bold witness See when we grieve like a Christian, instead of grieving like a lost person, we distinctly separate ourselves once again. Remember previously he's saying work hard so that unbelievers see that witness. I think he's communicating the same thing here. Christians grieve like a Christian who has hope, not like an unbeliever who has no hope about the afterlife. The way we grieve should serve as a witness. We should demonstrate that yes we believe in God's sovereignty but things are good, But when people that are close to us pass away, we still continue to believe in God's sovereignty. I've talked to numerous people that have grown frustrated and even walked away from the faith because someone close to them died and they considered it unfair by God. How could God take this person from me? I've talked to numerous people that that have abandoned the faith because they could not wrestle through God taking someone close to them. It's a question of God's goodness. Do we believe God's good or not? Do we believe that Romans 8.28 applies to us or not? That he's working everything in our life for good, even the death of other people, he works for our good. So when we grieve appropriately, when we have a perspective about the gospel, about Jesus coming to fix everything, about the fact that God is good in our life as Christians, it allows us to grieve in a way that lost people should be in awe of the fact that we can grieve joyfully. Book of Philippians. That our joy is not to be shaken by our circumstances. So I think it's possible, appropriate, and necessary for a Christian to grieve, to be sad, to, to be sorrowful. But to do it in a way that brings joy, honor, and glory to God. As we point people to God in the midst of that sorrow. I think Paul's calling this church to that type of mindset. A lack of knowledge was threatening to move the church in the midst of these difficult circumstances. Remember in chapter 2, Paul says, I want to come to you. I need to give you more knowledge about the scripture so that you're not moved in your tribulation. Remember we talked about the fact that they had to be grounded in their faith because it was real easy for tribulation to kind of rip them out of the ground and cause them to not follow Jesus anymore. We see that in the parable of the sower of the seed. When persecutions and tribulations came, some of the seeds stopped growing right stop stops growing, right? And Paul says, I need to make sure that you're grounded in your faith so that when bad things happen, you kind of sway in the wind and you're not uprooted. He's saying the same thing here. I can't have this church falling apart because loved ones are dying and you guys are walking away from the faith. You need to be informed about what happens to them so you can find joy and you can sorrow and grieve over it and then get over it and then be rejoicing over the truth that you know about what's going to happen in the future. Lack of knowledge was causing them to act like they did not know God. They were acting like unbelievers. In Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is describing our life before Christ. Before Christ, we don't have hope. An unbeliever has no hope. Now that we've come to Christ, we have an unbelievable hope that has to translate even during times of sorrow and grief. So back in 1 Thessalonians 4. This kind of, I don't know why college is just what I'm using this morning, um, I Paul wants them to understand, again, there's an appropriate time to grieve, but there's an appropriate hope that flows out of that grief. I remember when my mom dropped me off at school. We drove nine hours to school, her and my dad. They dropped me off, and they turned around and went home the next day. And I remember standing out in my dorm, you know, waving to mom, like, all right, I'm out of here, like, everything's going to be awesome. And my mom's just crying. I'm just weeping, like, you know, I'm leaving my son at college. Uh, But but the comfort and hope that came to her was that she was going to see me again. She was going to see me again, that she wasn't leaving me forever, that it wasn't permanent, but that it might be several months before she saw me again. So it was appropriate for her to be sorrowful over that separation. But what allowed her to get over that and not fall into um, a, a dangerous mindset of depression was the fact that she was going to see me soon. That it wasn't a permanent separation. And Paul wants these people to understand that. That it's absolutely appropriate for you to grieve. But grieve with the knowledge that you're not permanently separated from these people. And that's where the hope starts to flow into this passage now. That you are not permanently separated from these people. Grieve at the funeral. Grieve over the separation. Grieve over the fact that you should have never been separated. But because of sin, that's what's happened. But rejoice over the fact that it's not a permanent condition. Some implication from that. Just the fact that we get information from studying the end times. What am I doing to keep myself informed about God's plan? What am I doing to keep myself informed about God's plans? I've challenged all of you to try to embrace some type of method to increase your knowledge about the end times. There's books available. Articles available videos, things that you can watch to simply educate yourself about eschatology. It's the one area in the, in the church that we are probably most ignorant about. And Paul was not content with believers being ignorant about it. So what can we do as a church to make sure that we are not uninformed? Paul says, Paul implies being uninformed, being ignorant is not okay. That we need this information. We need this knowledge about how the end times play out. Not to satisfy our curiosity, but help us on a daily basis. Number two, not only do we gain information from studying about the end times, but we gain hope. We gain hope. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. But you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Alright, so where does the hope come from? Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul encourages his church and he says, you need to wake up and realize the chain of events has already started. Resurrection has already started. He's wanting to point these people to the hope of resurrection. He's not even pointing these people to the hope that these people are with God now. And we hear that type of comfort a lot that, well, so and so's in a better place now. And that's true. And we should find comfort from that. But the ultimate comfort that Paul points this church to is the resurrection that happens in the future. Because even though we got loved ones in heaven right now, they are disembodied. Their bodies are still here on this earth. What they are in heaven is not what they will be for eternity. Scripture says that there are people in heaven waiting. Waiting to enjoy everything that's promised. And they can't do that until we all get it together at Jesus' second coming. So the hope that Paul's even pointing to them is the fact that those people will be resurrected one day. Not just that they're in a better place. They are. Paul says that. That to to die is gain. It's better than being here. But the ultimate hope is that that's not even the permanent condition. That resurrection happens. And the comfort that Paul offers is that it's already started. It's already started with Jesus. He's affirming the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And Scripture calls Jesus the first fruits of what's to come. He's the first of those that will be resurrected. So we know the hope of resurrection is coming in the future. And Paul says the way we know it's coming in the future is because it's already happened in the past. It's already started. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17 Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. See, that's the no hope. That if Christ did not come back from the dead, then all your loved ones have perished. They're dead. They're gone. There's no hope. But, or verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You wouldn't think that to study the end times starts with studying something in the past, like the resurrection, but that's what Paul communicates here. He says, You want to be assured of the future? you want to be confident about your future, then start with understanding and having an unresolved faith in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're completely confident in the fact that Jesus has come back from the dead, that will give you assurance that you're going to come back from the dead. There was a time, and I shared this before, there was a time growing up that I felt like the resurrection was a story about Jesus that may or may not have happened kind of a 50-50 chance, and we were just people that were hoping for the the part that he did come back from the dead. And then, as I got older, I began to study guys like Gary Habermas, guys who had kind of devoted their life to the evidence for the resurrection. And I've been overwhelmed by the fact that it would take faith to believe that Jesus didn't come back from the dead. That all the evidence that even unbelievers accept as true... It all points to the resurrection to where, for me, it doesn't take a great deal of faith to believe in the resurrection because everything that I see points me to it. Like, it's the only thing that could have happened. Now, you may not be there yet because you haven't studied it like I have. And what I'm telling you is that to to have a greater assurance about the future starts with having a greater assurance about the past. That's what Paul says. He says, if we believe this happened, then we can definitely believe that this is going to happen. So, where are you at in your faith about the resurrection? And if it's low, it's got to increase so that your then confidence and faith in the future will also increase. Paul says, if this has happened, and it's implying that yes, it has, and yes, we believe it, then it's natural that we should believe this as well. Um, Colossians 1.18 is another passage you might want to look at on your own. Paul says, I believe in past events should translate into an assurance about future events happening as well. The more information we have, the more hope we can have. Remember, we defined faith earlier in our study as trusting truth. Faith is trusting true things. The way we increase in our faith is we increase in the amount of truth that we know to trust. Does that make sense? The way you grow in your faith is you grow in your knowledge of true things to put your trust in. So the way that I grow in my faith about the resurrection is I spend some time studying the resurrection. Now I have more information about what happened back 2,000 years ago. And now my faith is increased because I've got more information to put my trust in. Which then translates to my future faith. That I have faith that, that the people that I love that are Christians, I will see them again. I know they will be resurrected. Why? Because I've got such assurance that Jesus will resurrected. And it flows that I would also have confidence that He will resurrect His children. Specifically, He's calling us to a deep rooted belief in the resurrection. Some passages of Scripture you might want to jot down to look at on your own John 14, 19. John 14, 19. Jesus says, If I live, you will live. Romans 6, 1 through 11. These are all passages that affirm the resurrection and what it means for us. Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This isn't some argument that Paul comes up with and never came back to. It's something that's consistent in the New Testament. If Jesus came back from the dead, you're coming back from the dead. If God had power to raise Jesus, he has power to raise you. So the more confidence we have in the resurrection of Jesus, the more confidence we have in our own resurrection and the resurrection of our loved ones. First 1 Corinthians 6.14, 2 Corinthians 4.14, other really good passages that we just don't have time to look at this morning. Ultimately, Paul is communicating that we have nothing to fear. The same Jesus you are trusting for salvation is the Jesus that is coming in the future. And he's very intentional to even use that name, Jesus, here in this passage. He wants it to resonate with us. The same historical Jesus, the same historical Jesus that was brought back from the dead is the same one that's coming to raise everyone else from the dead as well. So we get information in studying the end times but we also get hope. We also get hope about our future that the hope of the believer, the future of the believer is positive, it's good. And we have guarantees in the past that give us assurance about that future. Implication. Do I ever let death cause me to question God's goodness? Do I ever let death Cause me to question God's goodness. You might want to put underneath that, or do I allow it to focus my attention on the glorious future He has for me? Do I allow death to to cause me to question God's goodness, or do I allow it to focus my attention? On the glorious future he has in store for me. Yeah, we grieve at funerals. We grieve at funerals. It's appropriate to grieve at funerals. It's appropriate to be sad. It's appropriate to be angry at sin, angry at death. But the hope that we have is that it's not a permanent separation. In that funeral, in that time of sorrow, our attention has to be directed. And at times we need people to help us have our attention directed to the glorious future. That resurrection is happening. Going back to that, that college perspective, Christmas break is happening, Mom. I'm coming home for a month. You're going to see me again. And sometimes we have to be reminded of that. I know that my dad drove my mom home. He had to remind my mom of that. Mom is going to... Er, Honey, he's going to call you tonight. He's got breaks that are coming up. He's going to fly home. He's got Delta privileges. He can jump on a plane and be here in in less than an hour. My mom had to be encouraged in that. And there's times when we need other believers to encourage us. As we go through intense times of sorrow, someone kind of directing our attention, but think about the glorious future. Think about the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. Think about the hope that we have that we too will be resurrected. This is not a permanent situation. Number three, we get information, we get hope, and we get clarity. We get clarity. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. So we will always be with the Lord. Paul says, don't be confused about the future. God is in control of history and is taking it to a specific goal. Paul wants these people to maybe not have all the details, but he does feel it necessary to give them some of the details. And it's those details that are meant to give us the encouragement and hope that we need to overcome ungodly sorrow. To instead sorrow like a Christian. So, he gives us necessary details, and we should find comfort in these details. But he says in uh, verse 15, We declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, this by a word from the Lord has caused some confusion and some debate about what he actually means. One thing that's clear is that this is not end time speculation. It's not Paul saying, All right, now I've read a lot of the Bible, and based on what I've read, here's how I kind of see it playing out. Here's a chart for you of what I think is going to happen. There's times and places for that, but that's not what's going on here. These people don't need charts. They don't need speculation. He says, what I'm about to give you comes directly from the Lord. Now, there's debate about why he's saying that. Because we would say that this entire book is from the Lord, right? And This is inspired writing. It's in the Bible. So everything that he said has come from the Lord. Now, there's debate about whether or not Jesus actually said this himself. There's no written evidence that he did, but we have other passages where Jesus is quoted and we don't have specific places where he said it in Scripture either though. in Acts 2035 Acts 20:35 it says that, that Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And that's, that's a good saying I mean I don't think anybody would debate that if Jesus were here he would probably say something like that. It's better to give than to receive. It's not recorded for us in the Gospels, though. We don't have Jesus saying that anywhere in the four Gospels. So it's just kind of assumed that Jesus did say it, but it just didn't get written down. We know from the the authors of the Gospels that, hey, we didn't write down everything. We wrote down what we thought you really needed to have. There was plenty of other things that Jesus said, plenty of other things that Jesus did. We didn't get to it. This is what we got for you. This is what you need. So we can assume that Jesus did say a lot of things and teach a lot of things that didn't get written down. And so it may be that Jesus said what Paul is communicating here, and it just didn't get written down previously. And so he says, I'm speaking to you. This is a word from the Lord. This is a word from Jesus. I'm affirming what Jesus has already said. It may also just be that a special revelation that was given to Paul. We know that Paul spent, um, spent time before he even began to plant churches in the desert and was, and was learning and, and studying, and it may be that God specifically gave him this information. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter how he got it. Did Jesus say it? Did Jesus not say it? Did it come in special revelation? Did it not? It doesn't matter. We know that it comes from God. And even if he didn't say that little phrase, it comes from God because it's in First Thessalonians, and First Thessalonians is in our Bible. It's not end-time speculation. It's 100% guaranteed to happen. And Paul lays it out for us. Some things that we should be expecting to happen because they will. And I want you to write these things down. These are things that Paul affirms to us will happen when Jesus comes back. First thing there, there will be Christians on earth when Jesus returns. There will be Christians on earth when Jesus returns. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So it's helpful for us to know that there will be Christians on this earth when Jesus comes back. Why is that important? Because it communicates to us that the church will always, always, always persevere. It's here to stay. It's not a fad. It's not a cult. You're not coming to something that will be gone in a few years. The church is here to stay. Believers are here to stay. Even if our numbers fluctuate. Even if persecution causes some to walk away from the faith. The church is here to stay. And it will be here when Jesus comes back. And that should provide encouragement to you that you're on the right team. That this is not going to fail. This is not going to crash. It's here until Jesus comes back. Secondly, dead Christians will be raised first. Dead Christians will be raised first. What does that communicate to us? That we should expect that Christians, loved ones, will die. Now that should go without saying, but at the time of the early church, it's just getting started. These are the first converts at Thessalonica. They're being told that Jesus is coming back. They may have the perspective that we're all going to be here when he does, and then you start seeing one by one people dying, and it's kind of like I didn't, I didn't realize people were going to die before he came back. For us, it's a given, yeah, we know Christians die, but for them, it wasn't necessarily a given. But what it should, nothing else, still remind us is that we should expect people that we love who are Christians to die. We should expect that. In no way should we assume that God is obligated to let all of us live out our days in a way that we think is appropriate. We don't all make it to 80, 90, to 100 years old. And even if we do, we still die. Until Jesus comes back, the church will always be here. But until Jesus comes back, Christians will always die as well. And we should expect that. And we should prepare for that. The good news is that they will remain part of God's plan. That's the encouragement. This church was kind of like, well, what happens to them? Like, are they still a part of this? I mean, we're all excited about Jesus coming back, but do they get to participate in this? The encouragement to us is that our dead loved ones are just as important to God as they are to us. That they don't get removed from God's plan because they didn't make it. They're still very much included in God's plan. Paul wants to communicate to this church the people that are important to you are important to God. In fact, when He comes to get you, they're coming with Him. They're coming with Him. Again, it goes back to that, that idea. This is not permanent. This condition is not permanent. You being separated from people that you fell in love with and fellowship within a local church, you're going to be reunited with them. And they are with God now. It's important to see the dead are in Christ The dead are in Christ Romans 8, 38-39 says that even Death cannot separate us from the love of God So yeah There's hope in the fact that our loved ones Are with God That's not the permanent hope But let's not lose sight of the fact that that is very hopeful That is very encouraging That the people that we love that are Christians Are in a better place right now They are with God right now And they are coming with Jesus when he comes back the phrase that's used in this, in this section here Is that these people are sleeping These people are sleeping Which has caused An, an unhealthy doctrine To spring up Called soul sleep Does anybody know what the doctrine of soul sleep says? Yeah Basically that You're not anywhere right now If you die um, that you're sleeping in the very real sense that your body's in the grave and you're there with it. And when Jesus comes back, it'll feel like you were always with Jesus. Kind of like you can go home and sleep for nine hours and wake up and it's like, whoa, nothing really happened. Like, But nine hours, it boggles my mind every morning when I wake up that did I really just sit in this position for six, seven hours? Because it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. The same problems and things that i got to do are still right here, even though I was here for seven hours. So some people teach soul sleep that you, you die, you go in the grave, but you don't realize that thousands of years have passed, just like you don't realize hours have passed when you fell asleep. You just wake up and you're with Jesus. But I think there's some indications in Scripture that would prevent us from believing such a doctrine. And, um we'll go through these real quick. Luke 23, 43. You want to jot these down? I'll read them as fast as I can, just so we can kind of see this together. Luke 23, 43. Uh, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their uh, demands should be granted. I'm reading verse 23. I should be reading verse 43. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is not soul-sleeping, and neither is the guy on the cross. You'll be with me in paradise today. It's not Jesus doesn't say, you'll feel like you're in paradise with me today when you wake up from thousands and thousands of years of sleeping. No, today we're going to paradise together. That's that's, to me a strong indication. People on the cross had no idea that he was going to serve as a great example for why we don't have to be baptized to go to heaven and why we're not soul sleeping. Um, I'm thankful that Jesus allowed this guy to get saved. Because he serves as a great example For some false doctrines That could easily spring up And we all have to do Is go back to the thief on the cross That if it didn't apply to him It doesn't apply to anybody else Um Corinthians 5.8 Yes, we are of good courage And we would rather be away from the body And at home With the Lord Away from the body At home With the Lord with the Lord, which implies that there's a time where you are separated from the body, not in your glorified body, but you're still with the Lord. Uh, Philippians 1: 123, Paul talks about it being better to be dead than alive. I can guarantee that Paul would not have said that if he believed that he was going to sleep in the tomb. It would be better to be alive, better to be serving God faithfully than to be dormant. And that's not the case. His belief was, I will be with Jesus when I die. Um, James two twenty six, another passage. Revelation six nine through eleven. That's where we have souls in heaven who have been martyred for Jesus, crying out to God, How long, O oh Lord, will you wait to avenge our blood? We have conscious souls who have been killed, who are in heaven, who are saying, How much longer till you take care of this? They're not sleeping. They're very much awake. They're very much observing what's going on. How long till you deal with these people that killed us? Some good examples for why we don't believe in a soul sleep. So, what is going on here? Paul uses the present tense, present condition, meaning that these people are currently sleeping. But he's talking about their body. He's talking about their bodies. And this is not a foreign concept. In Acts 7.60, we have Stephen when he's stoned. The ESV doesn't say it, but the actual Greek says um, that he had fallen asleep. The ESV translated as he died or he, he, he was dead. But the the actual Greek translation would say that he fell asleep. I think the wording that's being used here is to indicate to us the temporariness of what we're talking about. Notice that Jesus in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told that Jesus did what? Did he go to sleep? Back in verse 14? No. For since we believe that Jesus died. Jesus died, Christians go to sleep. The indication is that when Jesus died, he died the ultimate death. He defeats death. He gives us hope of the afterlife. And so it's appropriate now to say that we sleep because we have the hope of the awakening. Jesus died, and I think Paul's very specific in his word choice here. Jesus died and he rose again. So the Christians now sleep and they await that glorious awakening when their bodies and souls are reunited. Death has been redefined for Christians. Hebrews two, fourteen through 15, um, talks about Jesus destroying the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. So he's redefined death for us. Did you know that the term cemetery, cemetery was originally a Christian term. And cemetery means a sleeping place. A sleeping place. So the, the word cemetery in Greek, in Greek, it sprung up within the Christian environment. It meant a sleeping place. A temporary resident for those bodies. So Jesus is coming with those who have fallen asleep. He's bringing them with him when he returns. Next thing in our things that will happen. We've got Christians on earth when Jesus returns. Dead Christians will be raised first. There's no disadvantage for dying early. You still get to participate in everything. Number three, Jesus will descend with authority. Jesus will descend with authority. Now, there's debate about whether or not there's actually a three-noise announcement. Is there really a cry of command, a voice, and a sound of a trumpet? Or are those all descriptive of one noise? We could debate that. Ultimately, what's trying to be communicated here is that he comes with authority. All these terms were terms of authority, things that people in positions of authority would, would do to, to demonstrate, here I come, here I come. Wake up, pay attention. These were all alerts to authority. So I think we can see the the ultimate reason for these being included um, is because of the authority that's being communicated. And he's coming just like the angels promised in Acts. He left this way. He returns this way. Next in our uh, things that will happen, Christians will be united in the air. We're told that when Jesus comes, he comes with these souls, their bodies are raised, and then we that are living... We get united with these people in the air. And just about every commentator... I wouldn't have picked up on this. Every commentator that I looked at said that this is very intentional where we meet. Because in Ephesians 2, 2... Ephesians 2, 2... Satan is said to be the the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And so in that time, kind of the, 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 the sky, the air area was kind of viewed as the domain of demons. That's where the demons dwell. And so, all these commentators say that Paul is is intentionally communicating that God has mastery. He has mastery over Satan and his demons because he meets his children in their domain. That where they were viewed to dwell is where we get resurrected and it's almost like we get to flaunt who Jesus is. That look what just happened in your area. Look who has authority and power over what you sought to bring on this earth. By leading us into sin, Satan ultimately bringing that temptation, leading us astray. You thought that you were, you were damning all of mankind to hell, and you lost. You lost. And so, all the commentators said, this is really important what Paul has to say here. That it is showing God's mastery, God's mastery over Satan and his forces. And last thing, Christians will be with the Lord forever. Imagine you're reading this for the very first time. I mean, you, you sit with Timothy. we got questions about what's going to happen. And so you start reading this for the very first time. Alright, we're about to get some details. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And for the very first time you're hearing, my loved ones aren't lost. Like they still get included in this. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, if you're like me, I'd be like, and then what? What happens after that? Do we we go to heaven? Like the rapture people would say, do we come to earth? Like the second coming people would say, is there a millennial reign? Like what happens next? Where do we go? What do we do? And Paul just stops there. Like, in the discussion. And what Paul's communicating is, that's the climax of end time study. It's not a concern to him where we are geographically. It's not a concern for him to communicate that right now to this church. It doesn't matter to him if we're in heaven or if we're on earth. It doesn't matter what happens next. The most important thing, the climax of the passage, is that we get to be with the Lord Jesus forever with our loved ones forever. That's the climax of end time study, is that you come to to an unbelievable trust in the fact that that's what happens in our future. And he just cuts it off. No more discussion. No more detail about what happens after this. This is what the Thessalonians needed. This is what he gave them. I think we should be careful in coming to this passage and missing the point by coming to this passage only to speculate about what happens after this. There's a place for it. There's a place for trying to speculate Do we go to heaven? Do we come to earth? Is there a millennial reign? Is there not a millennial reign? But we can't let that overshadow the purpose of this passage. Why did Paul write it? To bring comfort and encouragement. What was the comfort and encouragement? You get to be with Jesus forever. You get to be with your loved ones forever. That was the purpose of him writing it. Implication, am I trusting that the details God does give me about the future are sufficient? Am I trusting that the details God gives me about the future... Are sufficient. Am I allowing them to give me the hope that I need? Am I trusting that the details God does give me about the future are sufficient? There's not any of us that wouldn't love more detail about this. We need to remember that we've been given exactly what we need for life and godliness. And we were given what we needed in this passage. That we're with Jesus forever. We're with our loved ones forever. Number four, last thing, comfort. We get information, we get hope, we get clarity to that information and hope about what it actually looks like, and then we get comfort. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Therefore encourage one another with these words. One of the commentators said, the second coming is not something to be figured out by watching the nightly news report, but a cherished truth. That provides comfort and encouragement for our faith. The second coming is not something to be figured out by watching the nightly news report, but a cherished truth that provides comfort and encouragement for our faith. I told you the complexity of this passage is not when it happens, but how do we apply it? Here's the application for you. First thing is to find comfort. Find comfort. Any grieving or frustration about our circumstances must be done in the context of the gospel. Application is find comfort in what is being said here. And that's complex because our feelings will say opposite of this when we come into these type of circumstances. When we lose a loved one, The pain is very real. The pain is very real. It's not easy to go through that. And we all know people that go through that. We may not experience something really close to home in our church for a while, but I guarantee in the extension of our church, we will all come across family members or friends that are going through difficult times of death. And we need to know how to find comfort in those type of situations. And secondly, it's provide comfort. So we find comfort for ourselves, but we also have the responsibility to encourage one another with these words. We are to actively encourage one another with the correct biblical theology of the end. When we sorrow like a lost person... We usually isolate ourselves. We close up. We don't want to be around people. We want to um, want to sulk in our own uh, feelings of what we're going through. And yet, we're actively told to encourage people. Nobody nobody loses a loved one, and they're the only one that's sad, right? Like nobody loses a loved one and they're the only one that's experiencing sadness. Even if you were to lose a child, if you're here at Sovereign Hope, you lose a child, you're gonna be you're gonna be devastated by that. But you're not the only one that's affected by that loss. It's not like everybody else at Sovereign Hope is like, well, that, yeah, that's, that's too bad, that's too bad. But um, yeah, I got other things I'm doing. You no, know, when we lose loved people, it affects multiple people. So the lost person's sorrows by kind of retreating. I want to be myself. I want want to assault and be sorrowful and grieve myself. But why this passage is so complex is because even in the midst of sorrow, we have the responsibility to encourage one another. To encourage others who have been affected by this. To encourage others about the future resurrection. That's why it's hard. It's hard to figure out when this is going to happen, but I think that might be even harder to do, to be in the midst of sorrow. When all you want to do is be by yourself, all you want to do is is feel sorry for yourself and what you're going through, to instead actively come out of that still sorrowing, still grieving, and encourage others that are also in the midst of that. We find comfort and we provide comfort. That's not always easy to do when we're going through difficult circumstances. Then lastly, we are to anticipate comfort. And this one, and this one's something that, that I think is implied here, at least for me. I want to find comfort from these, from these verses. I want to provide comfort when it happens. But I want to be actively anticipating comfort. And what I mean by that is. Will I actively seek to make sure that my loved one's funerals are not a time of grief? Am I going to be proactive now saying that when my loved one dies, that I will be able to find hope in the midst of that because I know that they will be resurrected with Christ one day? We all have loved ones we all have friends who we know are not Christians. And I'm going to tell you, Paul's talking about loved ones here and how we deal with that. He doesn't offer any type of consolation in this passage about how to handle someone who passes away. And they're not going to be resurrected to glory on that day. You see, I want to be active in knowing that the funerals that I'm going to be going to in the future, the ones that are going to hit home most for me, are funerals that I will be able to find the hope that is talked about in this passage. I'm not interested in going to funerals where I can't come to this passage and find hope and comfort about being reunited with that person. Because for some of our loved ones, it will be a permanent separation. There is no Christmas break coming. There is no hope of reuniting with them. And my desire is that we all get that wake-up call. That we all become active with the gospel so that we can have that hope and comfort at funerals that we will attend unless Jesus comes back. Jesus is coming, the dead are coming with Him, and the living will join Him. That's the comfort that's offered to us. I want to close with these two verses, and then we'll be done. In John 11, Jesus is talking to, um, to Martha. Lazarus has passed away. She said to him, or verse 25, Jesus said to her, on the resurrection of the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The hope that, that Jesus gave to Martha is that ultimately she would be with Lazarus forever one day. And she was grieving right then, and he was about to resurrect him so that she could be with him again right then. But ultimately the hope that Jesus offered to to his friends right there. this is him actively encouraging. He says that because I'm going to come back from the dead, you'll be reunited with your loved ones forever. And find hope and encouragement in that, Martha. 1 Corinthians 15. uh, A very similar passage to the one that we've looked at this morning. In verse 51. I think Paul's got When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Years later, Paul would give the same encouragement to the Corinthians, that we have the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the future, encourages you to live faithfully now, to focus on the here and now appropriately, to remain immovable in the midst of difficult circumstances. Let's pray. As we're preparing to close, I want to encourage you to to be meditating on these truths meditating on these truths as we leave seeking to make this real in your own life and how you're going to apply it in the coming weeks how can you be faithful to find comfort in this area how can you take these verses these specific words I think there's there's the important implication Paul says encourage each other with these words there's something powerful in the words that God chose to communicate to us These words offer the encouragement that we need. How will you be faithful to do that? How will you be faithful to seek out ways to provide comfort to others? And then ultimately, how will you seek to make sure that you are comforted at the future funerals that you will attend one day? We can be active now in drawing people to Christ, drawing people to salvation through the gospel. Father, I'm so thankful that you chose to give us this passage. God, I'm thankful that the Thessalonians had questions that we would have been asking today as well. I'm thankful that Paul took the time to interact with them and to answer them. And God, I'm thankful that you gave us exactly what we needed in this passage. Nothing more and nothing less. God, while there's confusion about when all this happens and when it all plays out, I'm thankful that we we can trust in the fact that these things will happen. That as we see loved ones pass away, we will be reunited with them. The climax is that we get to be with them and Christ for eternity. God, I pray that that would provide comfort to us. God, that we would be prepared when, when we do have something hit really at home here at Sovereign Hope. That when we are going through a difficult circumstance like this, that we will be reminded of this teaching. And that we will find the comfort that we need and be able to provide the comfort that will be needed at that time. And God, ultimately, as we, um, as we sit back and, and wait for that type of thing to happen, God, that we would anticipate those who, who we love dearly that are not Christians, God, that we would anticipate their death looms in the future as well. God, that it would spur us on to be bold and faithful in our witness for the gospel. So that when we do attend those funerals in the future, that it will be a time of hope. A time of encouragement. That it will be a temporary separation. We thank you for your word. We pray that we continue to speak through us throughout this week. That we be faithful to apply it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you if you have questions. I'm here. I would love to help answer those if I can. The giving boxes in the back. We want to encourage you to continue to give to be faithful to those commitments that you made. And, and being able to exercise that now is an act of worship um, as we continue to move forward as a church.